Welcome to Ot Talk. Today's conversation is called Watch the Other Hand, Part 1. It's the first of a series. I'll be attempting to untangle several political and economic trends. This will not be investment focused. It's just my attempt to explain some critical ideas that I believe are shaping the world. Introduction. I love magic. Any magic. Harry Potter, Magic the Gathering, David Blaine, Stephen Curry. Out of all the varied types of magic, card tricks remain my favorite. Hand me a deck of cards and I'll rifle through on autopilot, removing the jacks while I ready a trick called the Four Thieves. The best part about card magic is it happens right before your eyes. Through sleight of hand, memory games, and the power of suggestion, a proper magician leaves you in a state of wonder. Now, these days, after endless YouTube rabbit holes, I mostly know how any card trick you show me is done. I'll admit, sometimes I do stare at the left hand instead of the right and quote-unquote catch the performer. But mostly I find myself elsewhere. I find myself fully, willingly suspending my disbelief. I inhabit the unknowing, marveling spectator. You see, even when you know something is happening in the background, it's just no fun to miss the trick to miss the magic. Today, we're bombarded by the issues of our time. Pouring out of every device is evergreen COVID news. The march for racial justice leaps out of our screens, and the tantalizing stock market begs for attention. Our upcoming presidential election is itching to be center stage. The media feeds on our eyeballs, and we stare back unblinkingly. I want to be clear, there is no fault with taking in and acting upon the news du jour. There are plenty of current trends I wholeheartedly support, but I would suggest this torrent of popular news can serve as a distracting function from several large trends that do not punctually fit into a headline. These background waves will shape our lives over the next decade, so while we marvel at, act upon, blood boil for the nightly news, I want us to pay attention elsewhere. I want us to watch the other hand. Trend number one, the end or failure of globalization. Political news often feels like souped up ESPN. The highlight tapes don't show Mike Tyson placing well-worn fists into Buster Douglas, but there's still plenty of punches. Biden's calling Trump a liar and just wait until you see what Trump said next. This never-ending cage match displays two sides ever disagreeing with each other on, well, everything. But do they disagree on everything? The French musician Claude Debussy once said, music is a space between the notes. I'd argue politics is quite similar. In some ways, what shapes our country isn't what's being vehemently fought over. It's the silent agreement, the space between the arguments. To illustrate, from 1980 to 2016, both major political parties agreed upon the following. 1. Bailing out Wall Street. 2. Endless Middle East wars. 3. Immigration. 4. Wealthy political donors. 5. Income taxes instead of wealth taxes. and 6. No term limits on Congress. Our last two presidents' track records speak volumes. Bush and Obama dropped unprecedented amount of bombs on foreign countries. Bush and Obama massively fundraised from wealthy political donors and corporations. Bush and Obama used taxpayer money to bail out private corporations who had grossly overextended themselves. 
Now, whether you advocate for or against the above at that particular time is for a different discussion entirely. All I'm arguing is that the space between the political arguments, the shared ideas, are indeed societally defining. The two-party agreement that perhaps most singularly seeped into the American mindset is the idea that free trade is a universal good. We applauded NAFTA. We loved our made-in-China goods, and we actually believed in the Golden Arches theory. You know, the one that said that no two countries with McDonald's could ever go to war? Once two countries were trading with each other, there'd just be no incentive to ever fight again. Free trade soon evolved to a broader term, globalization, and became an untouchable hero, a hopeful one. It no longer mattered how or where goods were produced, as long as it was done as cheaply as possible with a side effect of peace. Today, this narrative is slipping. Many countries have gone to war with each other, Big Macs notwithstanding. While our abodes are filled with wallet-saving goods, that might startle you should you find a Made in the USA tag on it, we're, we're not quite sure if the bargain is worth it. It's not uncommon to hear, when did everything become such poor quality? Now, a fair reading of globalization would also include the powerful, high-quality supercomputers in our pockets to pair with our houses full of cheap chinkets. But the impact goes beyond this array of varied quality goods. Coming out of World War II, manufacturing wasn't just about quality-produced goods. It was the backbone of a rising middle class in America. Globalization has driven a millions of these jobs overseas, and with it destroyed the wealth of an entire class of Americans. Free trade has minted many winners in tech, finance, and service roles, but millions of fed-up, left-behind Americans no longer feel like a rising tide has lifted all boats. There's a tangible feel that we are no longer one America with one national economy. We're two Americas, the winning coastal, college-educated service industries, and the languishing center, rural, and manufacturing industries. On the backdrop of this growing American anguish, COVID-19 arrived. If globalization's promise was showing cracks, COVID's an earthquake. Free trade relies upon a simple premise. One party trades something of abundance for another party's something of abundance. Yet, a global pandemic means that all parties want the exact same resources, and those resources are not abundant. When two want the same thing, he who does not produce loses. We're watching a sprint to produce the first vaccine, and while there's global pressure to share scientific progress, there's whiffs of competition in the air. The not-so-subtle understanding that the country that produces a COVID-19 vaccine first will administer it to their people before all else. The U.S. federal government has already granted over $9 billion to companies to the end of helping America first. COVID's impact has reached much beyond vaccines. We've learned in the past few months that we not only don't manufacture, but we don't have the capability to manufacture our own PPE at scale. Ventilators, masks, and even antibacterial sanitizer come from our overseas manufacturers. Reminiscent of the 2003-2004 U.S. soldiers being shipped off to Iraq with inadequately armored Humvees, we've seen pockets of frontline hospital workers being forced to reuse masks and ration protective equipment. Worse, we learn 90% of U.S. antibiotics and key intakes such as ibuprofen, vitamin C, and hydrocortisone are produced in China. As the virus brought supply chains to a halt, it's dangerously clear just how vulnerable the cult of globalization has made us.
globalization is the era of efficiency, where cost savings is the primary imperative. When combined with the Wall Streetification of America, wherein our collective pensions, 401ks, and savings are all placed in the stock market, an implicit thinking has set in that anything that drives the stock market up is morally good. Globalization drives down costs, which drives corporate profits up, corporate stocks up, and theoretically, our collective wealth grows. I'd argue this thinking has failed, and it's failed miserably. This cut-cost-at-all-cost mentality led to overrun hospitals, for it would have been inefficient to carry excess capacity. When constructing a bridge that's meant to support 10,000 pounds, engineering students are taught margin of safety. You want to build the bridge as if it is needed to support 30,000 pounds. Yet our drive for efficiency has thrown this idea away in vast swaths of our economy. Over-efficiency gives us explosive Wall Street metrics, but crippled underlying structures. It's how we have all-time highs in the stock market while we carry the highest unemployment rate since the Depression. Americans are waking up in mass. I want to be clear, globalization is not an evil, but it is much more complex and nuanced than a universal positive. We want our goods to be efficiently produced and made, but are we comfortable as a nation relying on others for our most basic fundamentals, our hospital equipment, the drugs we most rely upon? Should those supply chains ever falter, either through confrontation or a crippling virus, are we comfortable being left without? The USA is entering a new era, one where economic efficiency can no longer be our singular king. I'll suggest that a new crown is being placed on the head of self-sufficiency. This will cause large shifts in our foundation. What does it all mean? That's harder to say. But as your speakers attempt, I will leave you with four predictions that I believe will occur. In a bonus prediction, that would be more aptly termed a personal hope. Prediction number one. Both the political left and right will advocate for the onshoring of manufacturing to our hemisphere or the U.S. itself. Prediction number two. Giant multinational companies will once again become, quote, American. Expect pro-America advertisements, commitments to build in America, and a social sheen placed upon the never-ending pursuit of profit. Just as today corporations tout corporate social responsibility and environmental sustainability, they will tout their American resiliency. Prediction number three. The four-year college degree will lose importance. The United States will return to building, and in doing so, will emphasize trade schools and community college. No longer can it be expected of all teenagers to take on six figures of student debt to receive a liberal arts degree. Number four, TSMC, or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Com Company, will become a household name. Intel recently announced it is once again failing, with massive delays in producing the newest cutting-edge 7-nanometer CPU. Now, the semicon industry drives computer technology, which is at the heart of all military technology. Intel is America's last semiconductor that builds here in the United States, and after the latest failure, will find themselves contracting third-party foundries, most likely in Asia, to fabricate these chips. Taiwan is firmly within China's hemisphere, and the United States military will desperately do what it can to ensure that TSMC and their ability to do what Intel can no longer do is in effect an American entity. More on this in future posts. Number five, a personal hope. 
My hope is that America will dream again. In a deglobalized world, the United States will need to remember that lowering costs has another lever beyond finding cheaper labor. We can lower costs by building in new ways. Clean energy sources, biomanufacturing, 3D printing, and a new space race might inspire millions of young minds to build once more. I'd argue that since 2000, Silicon Valley has been the area of most pronounced energy in all of America. That hasn't meant all positive things have come out of Silicon Valley, but it has been a place where new things can turn from dreams to being built. If the U.S. is to maintain its worldwide status, I dearly hope we learn to build new things in more than one region, and I hope we can build things in the physical world, not just the digital one, too. And that's it. Welcome to the new world. Coming up next, we'll dive into a second trend that will fundamentally shape our next decade. Thanks so much for listening.